Good morning. It's nice to have a quiet, uneventful week for a change, isn't it? If only. Time feels super saturated right now, doesn't it? Everything matters. Every day, every hour, every minute, every second. In an objective sense, in a moral sense, it has always been true that everything matters. But we have all just learned of an armed insurrection at the Capitol building to overturn the election in the president's favor. Many of us held our breaths as we watched unfold in real time these events, thanks to television and the internet. And all that during what is now the worst surge of the worst pandemic in a century. With daily death tolls exceeding three and even 4,000, it's 9-11 every day. So now it feels like it really matters that everything matters. In God's providence, this first Corinthians sermon series was settled on months ago. But if I had to pick a reading from scripture to respond to this week's events and all that led up to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 may well be the text I'd settle on. Here, Paul has to address that most human of problems in the church at Corinth, factionalism. Serious errors in conduct and in understanding have brought tensions among the Corinthians. And those tensions are now at a high pitch. The assembly has split into at least three factions, possibly more. Some of them seem to claim the authority of certain teachers, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, that's Peter in Aramaic, and my personal favorite, the faction of Christ. We're just followers of Jesus here. We're the Jesus faction. Some readers treat that as the correct group of the church because they say we're of Christ, but I don't think Paul is so easily fooled. If I were a betting man, I'd wager that the apostle would suggest that every faction in the Corinthian church claims we are of Christ. Thus, the apostle has the unenviable task of bringing back together what people have rent asunder, namely the unity of Christ's body, the church. There are strong forces pulling in opposite directions in this community. Differences in education, social status, and material wealth being chief among them. But the discord must urgently be resolved because, as Paul writes in, ver in verses uh, sorry, 7 through 8 of chapter 1, he says, The day of our Lord Jesus Christ is coming and will soon be revealed. And so... The believers at Corinth must visibly live out the reality that is always true of Christ's true body, unity under the cross. This threat to their unity, and in light of recent events, it's a major threat in our churches and in broader society today, was a sort of secret knowledge, not unlike a conspiracy theory, that had taken hold of two factions in particular. The two factions in question seem to share a lot in common. In fact, some scholars refer to their shared beliefs as the Corinthian heresy. These two groups thought of themselves as spiritual elites. 
they fashion themselves as the strong and the wise who are in possession of a special saving knowledge in Greek gnosis. They call those who do not have this knowledge or don't believe it, the weak and fools. These more enlightened Christians know, sorry, I'm using a lot of air quotes. They know incorrectly that they have already experienced the resurrection in the present. That is, they have enjoyed a spiritual resurrection, which is emphatically not a bodily re re resurrection. They have fully achieved all that salvation in Christ has to offer in the here and now without remainder. There is no future hope. It's all here right now. Therefore, they believe they can now exercise their Christian liberty absolutely. The outward sign they offer as proof of their super-Christian status is the fact that they speak in tongues, which they likely referred to as speaking in the tongues of angels. These are utterances that are unintelligible to humans, but they represent an elevated spiritual state. Socioeconomically, they seem to hail from fairly high on the social ladder. They are quite wealthy, wealthy enough to serve as patrons of the church, providing their homes as meeting spaces, while also furnishing the food for the agape meals wherein the Lord's Supper was observed every Sunday evening. They could afford to eat meat, a luxury only the upper classes enjoyed. They are high born, they don't have to work for a living, they have status and money to file lawsuits, and are all very well educated. These are not conjectures. These are all things based quite concretely in what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Now, these elite Christians in Corinth did differ amongst themselves in how they lived out this secret knowledge. Modern scholars distinguish these two factions in Corinth with labels. Again, these are modern labels. There's no evidence they use these themselves, but it's helpful to keep us organized. One group was we called the Libertines and the other the Ascetics. The Libertines believed that their super spiritual resurrected state granted them full license to do whatever they wanted with their bodies, in particular, what they ate and who they slept with. Thus, in chapter five, Paul rebukes with great force a church member who took to sleeping with his stepmother. In chapter 8 through chapter 10, Paul addresses blank the issue of food sacrifice to idols, which these strong Christians think is just fine. The ascetics, on the other hand, appear to have thought that since they have transcended the body, they therefore can and indeed must abstain from all sex whatsoever. In chapter 7, Paul expresses some sympathy for this group, though in the end, Paul affirms the goodness of marriage and sex within it. The group with which Paul identifies the most, however, are the so-called weak and foolish Christians. And nowhere does he state so clearly as in this section of the letter on the folly of the cross. Here we get a glimpse into the concrete circumstances of these early Christians who seem to have constituted the majority of the Christian assembly. Paul describes them plainly in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, nor powerful, nor of noble birth. In other words, these are the urban poor, Corinth being one of the major urban hubs. 
in the ancient Greek world. Paul says, if these brothers and sisters in Christ are absurd to you, then good, because the cross is absurd. In fact, in light of all that, I want to reread verses 18 to 31. Because now that we have the context, we can truly hear what Paul is getting at. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly or foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Make no mistake, Corinthians, Jesus Christ was crucified, and every last thing you think you know about God and people must be processed through the cross. God does not overcome sin, death, and the devil through strength or wisdom, but through weakness, through foolishness. The weakness of God is displayed when Jesus is crucified. How weak is it, you ask? The foolishness of sending a savior who sends up suffering the most humiliating and tortuous death, just how foolish is it? Well, Paul compares it to things that are not, to nothing. That is, to people who are nothing in their society. And all that to put to shame those that are something. And yet, it is when God is at his weakest, that is, on the cross, that he most powerfully conquers all. Want to know what God's power is like? Look at the cross. What about his wisdom? Look at the cross. What about his greatness, his majesty, his glory? Look at the cross. This is remarkable. Who makes the weakness and foolishness of their God the main selling point of their religion? Well, God himself does. What is equally remarkable is the fact that in all of this, Paul is here taking sides because God takes sides. God does not remain neutral. 
when you hear about the doctrine of election, the idea that God chose beyond time who will become part of his people, that's often a debate about the nature of grace and free will. But it turns out the Bible has something to say about how God chooses, and it's quite specific. Usually, Paul says here, God elects the poor, the uneducated, the low and despised, the people who are nothing. In fact, that has always been God's way of doing things. Deuteronomy 7 through 10, for example, reveals extensively why God chose Israel to be his special people. Moses says that God did not choose Israel because she was so numerous and therefore had great military strength, or because she was the most righteous nation on the earth, or because she was the richest nation. But in reality, chose Israel because it was the exact opposite of all those things. The fewest in number, and thus the weakest in military might. The most stubborn of people, and thus no more righteous than any other nation. And the poorest of nations, because the people were slaves in Egypt. God wanted not a great nation, but a humble nation. As in the Old Testament, so in the New, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In a moment, I want to make clear now, not just what Paul is saying, but what he is doing. Because here I want to speak directly to the problem facing the people of the United States at this very moment. We are in a moment when people cannot agree on basic facts. And these disagreements increasingly fall along the lines of partisan politics. Those disagreements do not disappear when we cross the threshold of a church, or at least click the link on a Zoom meeting. And now those disagreements among Christians, as all Americans, are of grave consequence, because many people who claim the name of Jesus took part in a riot to violently overturn the results of a democratic election. First, I want to note that everything Paul writes proceeds on the basis of a historical fact. That fact is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am a historian by training in ancient Judaism and Christianity. This issue is critical to me. Paul is not writing about some ultimately unknowable philosophical principles or speculations, but on something that happened. Right now, scope and scale of misinformation or outright lies, which has concretely led to violence and insurrection, is dissolving the very notion of fact altogether. Brothers and sisters, please think about this very carefully. If we, tr if we truly cannot establish as fact what happened in a public election, strictly governed by public laws, carefully overseen by poll watchers, counting observers, etc., that then underwent recounts, multiple ones, in disputed states, and then stood up under scrutiny in America's robust court system under judges of all political stripes, and with all of this taking place in just the last two months, then I do not see how we can ask with a straight face for an unbeliever to believe in distant events that transpired 2,000 years ago. According to our creed, 
That is, that our Lord Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and that on the third day he rose again. Therefore, whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, I'm not even getting to that, a true thing must be acknowledged as a true thing. So, Joe Biden legitimately won the 2020 election. That is not a partisan statement. It is a knowable historical fact. Furthermore, Paul does not use the disagreements themselves as a reason to doubt that there are right and wrong answers to the disputes in the church. He does not write, well, reasonable Christians disagree, so just grit your teeth and get along with each other. No, privileging the wealthy and the well-born is wrong. Sex with your stepmom is also wrong. Food sacrificed to idols is food offered to demons. Thank you, Anna. Where Paul does have a place for differences in the church, as many parts to one body under Christ our head, that is in the context of spiritual gifts and what each Christian has to offer, not on matters of doctrine or conduct. Likewise, Paul does not fall victim to the golden mean fallacy wherein one might be tempted to think the truth lies somewhere in between. A lot of people think X, a lot of other people think Z, and so the truth must be somewhere in the neighborhood of Y. No, the truth lies where the truth lies. It is out there. It is outside of us. It is outside of the positions we have staked. Perhaps the truth lands on one side of the political spectrum for one issue, and for another issue it lands on the other side or on no side at all. It may turn out to land quite lopsidedly, and one day you may wake up to realize that it's not the side you're on. Thankfully, Paul avoids the most morally lazy position of all, which is cynicism. That would correspond to what is perhaps a favorite trope in American politics, casting a pox on all your houses. If none of the options are good and everybody but you is wrong, or in a political context, both parties or all politicians are equally bad, then I'm excused from participating altogether. Paul does not cop out on this score. Instead, he evaluates point by point issues raised in the letter that the Corinthian church had sent to him, carefully responding to each one as the Holy Spirit guided him to do. It's hard, but necessary work for Christians today too. We must carefully weigh and discern the relevant facts on any issue and form our opinions on the careful reading of scripture and with prayer. And then we work together for the public good. I share these things with you now because at the end of the day, the Corinthian heresy bears a strong resemblance to a conspiracy theory, and it is tearing this church apart. There's a hidden knowledge that can enlighten you, make you wise, can save you, it can set you free. People say this today about all kinds of things. Furthermore, those in possession of this knowledge are morally, socially, and spiritually superior to those who don't. The teachings are esoteric for insiders only. Some call the Corinthian heresy a nascent form of Gnosticism. I said earlier that the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. That's where Gnosticism comes from. It's the central state knowledge that they claimed that only a select few possessed. In any case, if 
they are Gnostics, the devotees of conspiracy theories are no less Gnostic. Throughout its history, the church has asserted itself as a public society of Jesus' disciples. That helped address both an external and an internal threat. External to the church, the Greeks and Romans often accused Christians of forming a secret society with dark rituals, cannibalism, incest, and the like. They said, no, what you see in public is what you get. That's us. The internal threat was precisely this problem of Gnosticism in the church's own ranks. You can think of it like a diffuse network of Bible studies that would go deeper into more mysterious doctrines after church, outside of the priest's presence. And only those in possession of the secret knowledge to unlock the real meaning of the Bible, these people thought, they were the only ones certain to belong to the elect. Needless to say, that hidden knowledge or gnosis was false teaching. The church is committed to the teachings of the apostles as we are at Incarnation Anglican Church, declared themselves an open book. Yes, more basic things should be taught to new converts while other teachings are reserved for more mature Christians. That's just good pedagogy. But all Christian truth is nonetheless publicly available and in baptism, we make a public commitment to that truth. Jesus also thought a public commitment to the truth was very important as well. And so he gets baptized by John the Baptist, as we read. And then God the Father, just to make things clear, goes even further and declares for all to hear, this is my beloved son. All that was hidden in the old covenant has now been revealed in the new covenant. The mystery has been solved. And the most public, universal, historical declaration of who God truly is, is to be found on the cross of Jesus Christ, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, make us people of the truth. Make us sharers of the truth, people who delight in the truth, because your son is the truth. The closer we get to truth, the closer we get to him. Therefore, God, draw us ever closer Humble us, Lord, so that we may know where we have missed it, so that we may know where others have something to contribute, so that we may better understand the truth. And where we know on the basis of your word that something is not the truth, make us loving and also bold. So that way we may testify to your love into your boldness. We pray you keep the cross of Jesus ever present in front of our eyes and our minds so that everything we do, everything that we approach in life, not just theology, but everything, personal conduct, our public life, which is all that politics is really, we pray that we pass all these things through the filter 
of the cross. So that when we think we know that greatness is just really, really big strength or really, really big intelligence or wisdom or wealth or whatever, that these things have absolutely nothing to do with your son, but rather self-sacrificial love and denial of self is what Jesus is all about. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.